ago, back in 1965, the Rolling Stones released a song that quickly went to number one on the charts. The song was called, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Now, apart from the grammatical problems with that, uh, probably should be more like, I can't get any satisfaction, the overall idea behind that phrase is a universal human issue that has been ever since the creation of the world of, we as humans want a sense of satisfaction out of life. We want a sense of fulfillment, of meaning. But as hard as we try, we oftentimes find our desires for satisfaction, fulfillment, frustrated in some way or another. We reach a goal and we're excited about reaching that goal and there's a momentary satisfaction. But then we set another goal and we're not satisfied until we reach that goal. And it goes on and on and on uh, like this endless cycle of, of seeking satisfaction but never fully reaching it long term. It's really amazing when you think about it, how much time we invest in trying to be satisfied in our lives. Pretty much everything we do, we do with some focus or another to varying degrees on trying to be satisfied. I mean, think about how we spend our time. Think about the things that we buy. If you go out and uh, buy food, you're buying it with an eye towards being satisfied with your purchase. You don't want to buy lettuce that's all wilted. You don't want to buy moldy bread. You want food that's healthy for you, that fulfills the physical hunger in your stomach. And probably tastes good on the way down as well. Think about when you buy clothing. Uh, you want to buy something that probably pleases your taste, that other people may like, or maybe you're, you are more and more satisfied just simply based on your own comfort level. But you, when you buy clothes, you want something you're going to be satisfied with. I thought about when I bought these shoes I'm wearing. I'm wearing black dress shoes right now. Bought them a number of years ago. Uh, but when I was buying them, I bought them with an eye towards wanting something that I would be satisfied with. I was comparing this pair of shoes with another pair of black dress shoes. And the reason I didn't go with those other black dress shoes, even though they were slightly uh, cheaper, was because every time I took a step in them, I heard squeak, squeak, squeak. And thinking about how, I I bought them while I was in seminary, but thinking about how I'd be wearing them on a morning just like this, a Sunday morning uh, with a bunch of people around me. You don't, and I, I'm standing up, moving around a little bit. You don't want to hear every time I move, squeak, squeak. So I decided I'm not going to go with those cheaper shoes. I'm going to go with the slightly nicer ones that fit a little bit better and don't squeak. So, so I went with them. I've been pretty satisfied with them since then. I even think every Sunday morning when I'm choosing what am I going to wear, I have two pairs of, of dress shoes I wear, black shoes and brown shoes. I'm more satisfied, honestly, with my black shoes than with my brown shoes. And I think about this most Sunday mornings uh, when I'm either happy or when I'm putting on my black shoes or not quite as happy when I'm putting on my brown shoes. And well, there are a couple of reasons. One, my, br- my black shoes fit just a little bit better. They're a little bit more comfortable. But secondly, uh, the, the brown shoes have a thicker sole on them. And for me, that's not a completely insignificant thing because I'm already a pretty tall person. And I don't mind being tall. Yeah, I know on Sunday mornings I'm going to be talking with a lot of people. I'm, I'm taller than the majority of people in society because I'm 6'3". I don't need an artificial, artificial heightener on me to make me even taller than people because I value being roughly on the same level as people because it helps me relate to people a little bit better. And so I don't need those brown shoes to elevate me more than typical, but you'll find if whenever you see me wearing brown shoes next time, you can pretty much count on the fact that that morning I thought about how I wish they were a little bit shorter. That's just the way they are. But we buy things, we do things with, this, with an eye towards what is going to satisfy us. 
really, in a sense, everyone is born to this world with a hunger. Not just a physical hunger, but a, a more of a metaphorical hunger of wanting to be satisfied and fulfilled in life. And we spend all of our lives working towards finding that satisfaction and fulfillment. Yet time in, time out, we never fully reach a state where we're fully satisfied long term. Well, God has a lot to say about our satisfaction. And today I want to see what Jesus has to say about how we can find ultimate satisfaction in life. I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. Uh, we're in John 6 today. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 35 specifically. Today we're continuing our series called I Am. I Am is all about a series of statements that Jesus made that all begin with the words, I Am. Uh, we started it last week uh, talking about how the phrase I Am is a very theologically loaded phrase. It, it echoes back to Exodus chapter 3 when God brought Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Uh, before he did that, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Moses asked, who should I say sent me? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. So I am has been the most precious name of God among Israelites throughout history. And here comes Jesus on the scene 2,000 years ago, claiming that he himself is the I am. And so it's a very theologically loaded phrase. And today we're starting a series of seven uh, of the I am statements in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am, and then there's a phrase that comes after that. Today we're looking at, I am the bread of life. And throughout this series, our goal is to see that Jesus has a very significant relevance to our daily lives here and now. We're calling it present tense portraits of Christ. Because Jesus doesn't just have, have relevance 2,000 years ago. He doesn't just have relevance in terms of being a get-out-of-hell-free card when we die. He has relevance to our lives here and now. And today we're going to be seeing that as we look at Jesus as the bread of life. I invite you to please pray with me, and then we're going to read this passage. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to offer us satisfaction and fulfillment because you are the bread of life. As we open your word today and see the words that you spoke 2,000 years ago, I pray that you will make them alive and rich in our lives here today. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, that you want to be active in our lives here in September of the 21st century. Um, so, Lord, please be our teacher. May my words that come out of my mouth this morning be a reflection of what you want to communicate through your word and through your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Really, the broad context of the passage we're looking at this morning extends throughout all of John chapter 6. It begins in, in verse 1, extends well beyond what we're going to read this morning. But for sake of time, we're going to focus in on verses 25 through 35. Here, a crowd has been following Jesus, and they find him. And that's where we pick up in verse 25. It says that when this crowd found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for, for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous signs will you give that we may see and believe you? 
What will you do? Our forefathers, they ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to men. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of, uh, bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So this is the place in Scripture where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now one of the things I want us to recognize as we look in this passage today is that Jesus wants us to be satisfied. He really does want us to be satisfied. In the second half of verse 35, he says, He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, you're going to have hunger and thirst in your life. But I want you to be satisfied. I want you to be fulfilled. I don't want you to carry that hunger and thirst perpetually through your life. I want to be able to satisfy that longing, that hunger, that thirst that you have. And I imagine that when Jesus was speaking these words back to the audience, that crowd in the first century, that this really perked up their ears because they were people who knew hunger and thirst. See, the vast majority of the people in the first century were very poor. They lived uh, from hand to mouth. They would work. If they worked, they got paid so they could buy food for their day. They, they really lived day by day in that way, the majority of them did. And if they had a few days where they were sick and couldn't work, odds are good that they and their family would go hungry. And so they were people who knew about hunger and they knew about thirst too because drinking water was not nearly as easily accessible as it is for us today. We may have some degree of knowledge of hunger and thirst. I mean, our stomachs start to grumble as lunchtime or dinner time approaches and maybe we get a little frustrated if, if lunch or dinner is a, uh, an hour or two late. Uh, maybe we've had time where we've gone a little bit longer without food. But odds are good. And back in that first century they had a much greater realization of hunger and thirst than we do today. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the bread of life. Come to me, and then you won't be hungry and thirsty anymore. And to fully understand what Jesus is saying, we must recognize that this hunger and thirst is not merely talking about physical hunger and thirst that we feel in our stomach. It's ta- he's talking about a metaphorical sense where we have this desire to have satisfaction and fulfillment in our lives. And it's that hunger and that thirst for satisfaction and fulfillment that Jesus ultimately wants to satisfy. But then he, he, he goes on to say that if we really want to find satisfaction in life, we must look to Jesus because nothing short of Jesus himself will ultimately satisfy us. Now, this may not be a very popular statement in today's culture because we live in a culture where people want to discover their own way. They want to do their own thing, find their own sense of meaning. But Jesus is God, and he is speaking to how we've been created. That we've been created in a way that only Jesus himself can ultimately satisfy us. Here in this passage, people came to Jesus looking for food. Let me back up a little bit and give you some of the broader context. Earlier in John chapter 6, we see that Jesus was out in the wilderness with a large crowd of people, well over 5,000 people who were listening to Jesus teach. And it got to be late in the day. I mean, maybe you could say that Jesus got long-winded. But more likely, we need to recognize that just the norm in that culture, as it is in many other cultures today, is for people to preach or to speak or to teach for hours and hours and hours. 
And this was what Jesus was doing with this large crowd of people. But they were out in the wilderness, and it was getting late in the day, and people began to get hungry, and they realized, we don't have much food with us, and there's no place around here to buy food. What are we going to do? We're getting hungry. So Jesus, in the beginning of John 6, performed an amazing miracle where he took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplied them into enough food to feed all 5,000-plus people who were there on that day. They thought that was pretty cool. They got to see, they got to hear good teaching. They got to see a little miracle. And then they got their, their bellies filled with food. So they thought that was pretty cool. So the next day they wake up and Jesus and his disciples are gone. They're wondering, where are they? And so that's when we come up in our passage that we're looking at today where the crowd has come to seek out Jesus and his disciples. And immediately when Jesus sees them that next morning, he, he identifies their motives. He says, look, you came looking for me, but you weren't really looking for me so much as you were looking for more food. And the people, they wanted to get their bellies filled. And they probably wanted a little uh, fun sideshow as well of another miracle. They were looking for food. And then they got into a discussion with Jesus about, look, if you are so great, you're saying you're great, if you're really that great, you should be able to provide us more and more food. They're saying, think of back in the wilderness, just after Israel came out of captivity in Egypt, Moses provided food for them. And that was true. Back, and to some degree, it wasn't so much Moses. Jesus corrected them and said, it's actually God who provided that food. But they were pointing to Moses and saying, look, Moses provided food for the Israelites. Because after the Israelites came out of captivity in Egypt, they wandered for 40 years in the desert. If you know much about deserts, you know there's not a whole lot of food out there in the desert. And especially because most scholars think that there are upwards of three to four million Israelites wandering through the desert. Where are you going to find enough food to feed millions upon millions of people in the desert? Well, God provided for them. They were hungry. God provided. Um, he provided a substance called manna. It's kind of like bread, but what would happen is each morning when people woke up, there would be manna outside of the camp. So people would go out and collect it, and then they would eat it that day. The next day there would be more manna outside of the camp. And so these people here in John 6, they're talking with, with Jesus saying, Jesus, give us some more bread. You fed us yesterday, you feed us again today. And they're comparing Jesus with Moses saying, look, Moses did an amazing bread thing. Why don't you do an amazing bread thing as well? And then we'll believe in you. Then we'll trust you. Then we'll follow you. And Jesus says, look, you have it all mixed up. And besides, the bread that you're looking for will satisfy you temporarily. And then you're just going to get hungry again and again and again. And Jesus says, look, now God is doing something different. Rather than just providing you physical bread to, to feed your stomachs over and over and over, God is sending someone, not something, but someone who will ultimately satisfy you. He says in verse 33, this is Jesus speaking, he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now the people are pretty interested in this. They're wondering, okay, you're talking about some sort of bread that's going to uh, be able to satisfy our hunger long term. Give it to us. And Jesus basically just drops a bomb on the situation, making one of the I am statements that completely blows them away. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go, thirst, go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is identifying himself as the one who will ultimately satisfy us. And we need to recognize again that what Jesus is talking about is not mere uh, physical sustenance with food that, that soothes our, our hungry stomachs. 
He wants to satisfy us in terms of our deeper sense of longing for purpose and meaning and fulfillment. He wants to ultimately satisfy us. What he's talking about here uh, has been called a God-shaped hole that God has put inside each one of us. It's a hole, metaphorically speaking, that can only be filled by God. That's why if we try to fill that hole with other things, they will never ultimately satisfy us. Decided to bring some toys with me today. Many of you may be familiar with this type of toy. It's a little bench. Micaiah just got it for his birthday uh, about a month and a half ago. It's a cool little bench. You can take this hammer and you can pound these pegs down through here. Now, what would happen if you take out a round peg and try to put in the square peg instead? Will it go in very well? Monica, you want to try it for us? Try to see if you can get that in there. It's not fitting. Why isn't it fitting? Yeah, not the right shape. You need a round peg to go in a round hole. In the same way, I mean, this, this square peg is good for a lot of things. I found it down in our basement. It was forming a fence to keep these plastic cows and plastic sheep and plastic uh, chickens from escaping. And so it formed a nice little fence. A square peg is very good for forming a fence. A square peg is very good for building forts. A square peg is not good for going in a round hole. In the same way, in our lives... We have a God-shaped hole in us. That we have a lot of other good things in our life, but they can never ultimately fulfill that God-shaped hole, that God-shaped void in our lives. It's not that those other things are bad. They, things like a job, things like a family, things like friends, things like athletic achievements, uh, any number of other pursuits we can have in our lives, things like our possessions and our houses and our iPhones and our, our computers and our cars. Those are good things. There's nothing wrong with them but they can never ultimately fulfill a God-shaped hole in us. It's kind of like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And it's interesting, when you listen to people talk who have achieved a lot of worldly success, so often you hear them talk about how they still aren't fully satisfied. I mean, I read Sports Illustrated every week. It seems like I very often come across stories of athletes who have reached a lot of success financially and athletically, They receive a lot of popularity and acclaim, but they still aren't fulfilled. They still want more and more and more. Let me share a couple other stories that I've come across as well. Many of you may know the name Chris Everett, especially if you're not super young, but if you're a little bit older. You may know her as one of the um, most winning women's tennis players ever. She still holds a number of women's tennis records. But a number of years ago, she was considering uh, the time when she was going to retire from tennis She had an interview, and she talked about how scared she was of retirement. Listen to what she had to say. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by me being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. See, up to that point in her life, probably from a very, very young age, Chris Everett had devoted her life to tennis. And the the praise that she got from that, the success, the awards, the money, had all been uh, put into her life, and she used that to form a sense of satisfaction and identity. But now, as as she was considering a life without tennis any longer, where she wasn't actively uh, professional playing in tournaments any longer, she said, now I don't know who I am. 
What's, what that is is an indication of that God-shaped hole that no amount of worldly success or money or fame or reaching worldly goals can fulfill because there's always more. There's the God-shaped hole that only God himself can fulfill. Or I think of a man named Sky Adams. You may not know that name, but you probably know the, the cartoon character that he created, Dilbert. Uh, he wrote in a, one of his blog entries fairly recently. He said, I remember when Dilbert hit it big, and it became clear that I would never again have to worry about money. It was a wonderful feeling, but it didn't last. I went from happy to hollow with no warning. The first moment that I could afford any car I wanted, I lost interest in having a nice car. I simply couldn't see the point if there ever was one. He said, success is surprisingly disorienting. One day, about 10 years ago, I was alone in my office sitting on the couch and reflecting on the fact that I had managed to become rich and famous in my dream job. Do you hear what he's saying here? Isn't this what we all desire in some sense or another? That we would love to have a dream job that we, that we enjoy going to, where we don't dread Monday mornings, where we don't dread the alarm going off when we have to get up and go to work, where we go there and find life and enjoyment there. I think that's a desire that we all have. And to become rich and famous doing it, I mean, what more, we would think, what more could we want to be satisfied? But listen to what he says. He said, for the first time in my life, I had no goals. And for a goal-oriented guy, that's an empty feeling. Success was supposed to feel good and to stay that way. But it tricked me. There was a huge hole in my soul. I sat in my office and sobbed. See, Scott Adams, he recognized that he had achieved everything he ever hoped to achieve. And you would think, okay, if anyone ever has a possibility of being satisfied with their achievements, it would be this guy. But he said, look, I got there. And it was hollow. It was empty. There wasn't the satisfaction I was hoping for. There's still that hole. It's interesting, he even uses the whole terminology, a huge hole in my soul. It's a God-shaped hole that only God can fulfill. And this isn't a new thing that's just come up in the last uh, couple generations, even though the examples I just shared are from recently. Throughout Scripture, throughout human history, there's pursuit of satisfaction, but an an inability to fully attain it has been a part of the human condition. I think of the book of Ecclesiastes, where you have King Solomon, who is probably the richest person who's ever walked on this earth. He was one of the wisest people. He was one of the most powerful people. He had every opportunity available to him to try to attain happiness and meaning. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is is about King Solomon's pursuits to find happiness. And in the end, he finds out that nothing that he can invest himself in in this world can give him that ultimate sense of satisfaction. Listen to what he says. For instance, this is just one example of many out of Ecclesiastes 2. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, he said, I enjoyed my work while I did it, but then I got done and looked at what I'd done, and yeah, it was pretty impressive. But in the big scheme of things, it doesn't bring me a sense of satisfaction. It doesn't bring me a sense of meaning. He's investing his life, his, his ultimate goal in life is in the wrong place because he's not fulfilling that God-shaped hole. 
Jim Carrey, many of you may know his name, a uh, famous actor, starred in many movies. He made a statement that I think is just wonderful. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. I mean, you see, he got everything he wanted. Rich, famous, he achieved his dreams. He said, it didn't satisfy me. And I kind of wish that other. he's saying, I wish that others could experience the same thing so they would know that that will not ultimately satisfy them. This is the case over and over and over when people reach their dreams. That ultimately, that can't bring satisfaction if those dreams are based on worldly things. So, so Christ alone can ultimately fulfill us. Jesus' diagnosis here in this passage in verse 27 is, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. You see, if we are investing our ultimate sense of purpose and satisfaction in things of this world, no matter how good those things are in and of themselves, they will never ultimately satisfy us. We have that God-shaped hole that only he can satisfy. So we have the practical question of, okay, Jesus is the bread of life. How do we find that satisfaction in him and him alone? Well, one of the things that he points out in this passage is that faith in Christ is a huge key. Really, we feast on Christ through what could be called transformative faith. Up in uh, verse 29, Jesus says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. This is faith in Christ. That is how we really eat the bread of life, metaphorically speaking. That's how we allow Jesus to bring us nourishment and satisfaction in our lives is through faith in him. This type of faith that we're talking about is a faith uh, in trusting that Jesus is the treasure that trumps every other treasure. This faith holds on to Jesus as the greatest thing in the entire world and, and, and causes us to set our hearts in pursuing him above all else and finding our satisfaction and identity and purpose and well-being in him and not necessarily in the other things. It's not that the other things aren't fine and good in and of themselves, but they can't be the ultimate thing that we are pursuing. I use the word transformative faith to point to the fact that there has to be a transformation that takes place inside of us in order for us to really see Jesus as that treasure that trumps all others. Because if we don't have a, a transformation taking, on, taking place inside of us, we'll never fully be able to hold on to Jesus as the ultimate source of satisfaction. Otherwise, our hearts will keep being drawn to other places. I think of what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in, or, yeah, well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And what he's talking about there, there's, there's a secret that's taking, or something, a process that's taking place inside of him where he has been transformed so that whatever his exterior circumstances are, he can still find contentment and satisfaction because of his relationship with Christ. And even verse 13, which is oftentimes quoted out of context, he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He's looking to Christ to strengthen him internally to enable him to find contentment and satisfaction in Christ regardless of his circumstances. Now you may be sitting there thinking today, well, Pastor Brandon, it's so, it must be easy for you. It's hard for, for us because, you know, you're in ministry. You are devoting your life to things of God. 
I'll say, you know what? The temptations that you all face are the same temptations that I face in terms of placing my identity and sense of success and significance in other places. Because pastors face a huge temptation to want to place their sense of satisfaction on how successful their church is. Oftentimes that success is based on how many people are in attendance, how much money is coming in, how many people are involved in small groups or in classes, how popular is the pastor, how well is the pastor known among other pastors. Pastors face the same temptations as anyone else to put our identity in things that ultimately cannot satisfy. And that's, a, I mean, that's something I wrestle with on a regular basis to keep, keep focusing on Christ rather than on those other things that can't ultimately satisfy. One of the other challenges that pastors face that's a little bit more unique is that it's so easy to let activity in the name of Christ replace actual intimacy and communion with Christ. That we can get super busy. That can happen to any of us who are involved in ministry stuff. We can get super busy doing things for Christ, but that doesn't replace an actual personal, living, vibrant relationship with him. Now let me make this even more practical for us. What are some practical steps we can take to grow in our faith in Christ so that we eat on him as the bread of life and find satisfaction in him? Really what this is is all about our up relationship with God. If you've been here for a little while, you know about this up-in-out triangle, which talks about the three key relationships that Christ followers have. The up relationship with God, the in relationship with other Christians, and the out relationship with the world around us. And, and growing and, and internalizing Christ as the bread of life is all about the up relationship with God. One of the first practical steps we can take is to simply examine ourselves. Ask ourselves, is there anything else in my life that I am pursuing more than I'm pursuing Christ? Out on the Welcome Center, there's a, a little brochure that you can pick up called How Do I Grow as a Follower of Christ? We passed this out a few weeks ago as well. But inside are a whole bunch of self-examination questions. If you don't have one of these, I encourage you to pick one up. Because there's one whole section here on questions about our relationship with God and about how we can prioritize that relationship more so that we can eat more from the bread of life. Even at the bottom here are examples of a couple of the questions. Do I love God himself? Or do I allow myself to be satisfied with simply loving the blessings he gives me? That speaks straight to this point of are we trying to fill that God-shaped hole with God or with something else? Or another question, what competes with my devotion to God? An important step to take is to examine ourselves and figure out, okay, is Christ my number one priority? Or am I trying to find satisfaction in something else? A second step is just to get in Scripture. We talk about this a lot, but there's no replacement for getting God's Word into your life. Jesus even said, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, towards that end, we have a Scripture tree out in the lobby area. You've probably seen it as you come in, and we talked about it last week. That's the place where if you finish reading a book of, a Bi- of the Bible in the next six weeks, I encourage you to grab one of those note cards, Put the name of the book, put your key takeaway point up from that book, and stick it up there on that, on that wall. That's a way to encourage one another to get in the Scripture and to encourage one another in terms of what God's teaching us through His Word as well. So get in the Scripture. Make time for it. And that leads to the third point of slow down. So often in life, we are going so fast. It's amazing how society moves quicker and quicker and quicker. And we're, when we never slow down, to spend time with Christ and to examine ourselves, we end up with our attention pulled everywhere else 
And we end up with our satisfaction tied to so many other things rather than Christ. Pastor David earlier shared in the children's message about what would happen if you lived a life just eating candy. It wouldn't be good. But it's a very common uh, phenomenon for children, teenagers, and even for adults that we can fill up on junk food, and then when it comes time to have the actual meal, we aren't hungry anymore. You see, if you eat junk food all afternoon, no matter what's put in front of you, whether it's a great steak, whether it's anything else that is, is tremendous tasting, you won't have much of an appetite for it because you've already filled yourself up on junk food. In the same way, if we fill our lives up with everything else, with pursuing all this other stuff, these things aren't bad in of themselves, but they can't be the ultimate thing. We have to make time in order to commune with Christ. My, my prayer is that as we do so, we will find the ultimate satisfaction that only comes through God. Everything else will ultimately leave us hungry and thirsty, but God alone will satisfy us. I want to close by reading a couple of verses out of Philippians 3. We already talked in Philippians 4 about how uh, Paul had found contentment in Christ because of the internal transformation that had taken place. I think in Philippians 3 we see a, a deeper glimpse of that transformation. And the reason Paul could be content and satisfied is because Christ was his treasure. Philippians 3, 7 and 8, Paul says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Christ alone can satisfy us. Paul found contentment in Christ. He had a lot of other good things going on, and it wasn't those, that those were bad, but Christ was his treasure, and he set his heart on pursuing that treasure, and in that treasure of Jesus Christ, he found satisfaction. May it be the same for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to be the bread of life, to satisfy us even when so much else in the world can never satisfy. Lord, I pray that we will not work for food that spoils, that we will not invest our lives wholeheartedly in things that can never satisfy. I pray that we will do our jobs, do our schoolwork, do our family life wholeheartedly as if working for you, Lord. But may we do it with a vision of wanting to please you and walk with you in the process and honor you and glorify you so that in the end, we won't be chasing something that can never fulfill us, but that we will instead be chasing you, who can ultimately satisfy us, because you alone are the bread of life. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.